Back in the hippie days, one might hear someone who was well-respected described as an old soul. As in, so-and-so is certainly wise beyond their years, or in this incarnation, so-and-so clearly carries many centuries of wisdom. It was certainly meant as a compliment, but it also carried an air of expectation of someone whose instincts and vision portends great things, and if not great in the fame and fortune context, certainly an interesting and adventurous life. In my book, this episode's guest, Rad Pereira, qualifies as an old soul. Rad is a young theater artist, writer, educator, and community activist who, despite their youth and the uncertain times we live in, has both accomplished a lot and has an amazingly clear sense of purpose and direction. A clarity that is defined by questions like, how can we imagine and manifest alternative futures together? Was my body conditioned to survive in a world that was not made for me? And can the natural world function as a moral compass? Hi there. My name is Bill Cleveland, and in this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, we'll explore these and many other provocative questions related to Rad Pereira's extraordinary life's journey. Part one, just sharing stories. Hey there. I'm calling from the Mahikanitak River Valley, so-called Hudson River Valley, which is the unceded occupied homelands of Haudenosaunee, Mohican, Algonquin, Muncie Lenape, and Stockbridge Muncie, amongst a few others. The Ganyakehaga, or Mohawks of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, call this the Eastern Door. The waters, dams, and reservoirs that sustain the so-called New York City area of Lenape Hoking all come from these homelands. I honor their ancestors, past, present, and future by continuing to uplift their prayers, commit myself to their leadership and environmental priorities. May those of us who are not native to these lands continue to fight the erasure of native peoples. I do lots of different things. I'd say what combines all of them is stories. I tell stories as a performer in theater and TV and film. I also tell stories as a director in TV, film and theater. And then I also bring people together to tell stories, not just professional storytellers, actors, also day-to-day people. And I really love the liberation that comes from sharing stories and creating spaces where people feel cared for enough, where they can feel safe enough to be in a place of imagining. Because to me, that's what I call healing justice. Healing justice is an environment where we feel safe and cared for enough to heal and to imagine healing-centered stories, not just trauma-centered stories. I really love stories that invite us to imagine ways we hadn't considered before, whether that's through alternate realities that Afrofuturism has taught us, where it's like alternate timelines to the reality that we know that we get to imagine, and Black folks specifically get to imagine themselves in a different storyline where reality might have looked, felt differently. I love those kinds of stories. I love stories that invite us into liberation, which to me means taking away the conditioning of the place we live in today 
and break our minds open. So I like those stories that crack our perceived notions of reality and what's possible. Rad's family history can be described in many ways. Richly diverse, complicated, the stuff of stories, and most certainly questions and more questions about those stories, which in Rad's case added up to them becoming an imaginative and intensely curious child. And given that, it's not surprising that Rad was naturally drawn to the arts and particularly theater in all its forms. I was born in Pindora, which is currently called Brazil, and uh, both sides of my family were in diaspora. So they were disconnected, removed from their homelands. And on my dad's side, that's Eastern European Jews. Most of our family on that side was killed in the Holocaust. And on my mom's side, that's enslaved Africans and their descendants and indigenous peoples of Abiyala, Pindorama, Brazil. And then a huge part is my mom is a really, really radical LGBTQT immigrants, refugees, rights and labor rights organizer. So I think that not necessarily quote, belonging and growing up in, in a specific cultural tradition really made me crave that connection. And from a really young age, I wanted to tell stories and I would make everyone sit and watch me fantabulize and try to create mythology. And I would create these like magical realism tales of our histories and really trying to uncover what was covered or what was erased or what was suppressed. And for survival, both sides of my family did a lot of suppression and repression of their own histories and of what it took to get to where they were. And both sides did a lot of assimilation into capitalist, somewhat white supremacist ways of being to survive. And I think that my need for connection came as a disruption to that process. And I think on both sides of my family, I was questioning, like, why are we here? What are we doing? Who are we to each other? And what are our stories? And it took me a while to figure that out, to put words to that. And in my years leading up to being able to articulate it this way, I did some awesome children's theater in South Florida where we migrated from Brazil. My mom asked the local librarian, my kid wants to do theater, where do we go? And they recommended the Fort Lauderdale Children's Theater, which was super diverse and really creative and a spectrum of theatrical traditions, which was, I think, amazing. I, so I was at that children's theater from when I was seven till when I was 14. Needless to say, during this stretch of time, the theater became a central part of Rad's life. It also gave them access to new ways of thinking about how culture influences, how people experience and think about how the world works and their place in it. When I was 12, I started working with Anthony Hubert, my first black acting teacher that really kind of introduced me to liberation work and in how my body might have been conditioned to survive in a system that wasn't made for me. And so he helped me do a lot of excavating. What is my true body? What is my true self? And like getting back in touch with my wildness. And he was helping me uncover all these layers of conditioning I had been 
trying to wear the costume of this like first world young person who was gonna succeed in theater as I saw it shown to me, which was Broadway. That was like the only kind of successful version of theater that I was shown. And then while I was at Children's Theater, I saw this poster for Interlochen Center for the Arts in Northern Michigan. And I brought it home to my mom and I was like, let's order the VHS tape. I want to see what this place is about. It's places like Interlochen that say, Art is integral to what it is to be a human being, to be uh, on a journey of trying to understand what this crazy world is all about. Best part of Interlaken to me is this amazing community. Builds confidence, kind of motivates you to do the best you can. You feel so inspired. Experiencing a challenge. And it just, it looked like this utopia of the arts for young people. And we applied and I got like a full scholarship to be able to go to camp there for two summers and do musical theater. And so my training was getting more rigorous and like a, I'd say a more European model of acting and musical theater. And I was really, really committed to being this performance workhorse. I wanted to be like that I saw in the YouTube videos. I was like, that's what I want to do. I was the only channel I was shown to get to what I thought was the only option. And then at Interlochen Summer Arts Camp, I was invited to audition for the year-long boarding school. And I applied. I got a big scholarship to go there. And so I spent three years there getting even more and more rigorous, like Stanislavski, Grotowski. There was some experimental work, which I really loved and started to crave more and more of. And that was like the, the small gateway into what would later become my huge love of experimental and devised work. But that was where I first saw a, a light into that and then I then I went to college in New York City for musical theater and that was very interesting part two Alice in Wonderland when Rad came to New York City she was following what appeared to be the only option available to someone who wanted to make a life in musical theater but the turmoil and uncertainty that rose up with the onset of the Great Recession not only gave her pause but also provided an unanticipated opportunity to discover another path. I would say by my sophomore year, I realized that I no longer wanted to be on Broadway and that I no longer wanted to just do musical theater. It was during Occupy Wall Street, and my school was right down the block, and that's when I started seeing political performance art, which I'd seen in Brazil when I would go visit my family. There's a lot of street clowns, a lot of like street theater, and I would see it, but I lacked a political context in Brazil because I was away. So seeing it here, like where I understood like the socio-political context, I was able to put it on its stage, understand the setting that it was on and what it was commenting on. Occupation is a form of creative resistance. Occupy public space. Occupy public space. Reclaim democracy. Reclaim democracy. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. We are all the show. We are all the show. You. You. Me. Me. Us. Us. Now. Now. You. You. Me. Me. Us. Now. And from then. I'd say I spent, I was about like 20 
And then I said I'd spent about eight years from then doing really weird performances in basements and on stoops and in backyards and all types of downtown places like art galleries, little black box theaters. And I just got to really experience the gamut of experimental performance, which to me ranged from like performance art, devised theater. Yeah, that's when I like really understood my calling. And I was like, oh, I want to combine my love for collectivity and community, as I was discovering then, with these experimental forms. But then there was still a piece missing. I wasn't into these descendants of bourgeois theater, which was there's granting and funding at the top and it gets trickled down to the artists. And it, it, it just didn't it didn't feel good to me. It didn't feel right. Rad's continuing journey through the community arts labyrinth was a combination of passion, persistence and serendipity. But one of the unfortunate aspects of life in what some considered the margins of the American arts world is that there are so many isolated bubbles and silos filled with potential allies and fellow travelers who never seem to connect with each other. But once again, Rad seemed to be at the right place at the right time when they crossed paths with someone who was very well suited to introduce them to the field's rich history. And then we applied for the first year of public artists in residence with the Department of Cultural Affairs in New York City to work with UBQT foster youth. And that's where I met uh, my mentor, Jan Cohen Cruz, who was assessing how our work was impacting the youth and how it was interacting with the government entities. And that that's where the thing clicked to me. I was like, this work needs to be publicly funded. Like, I was like, it's, it's a community service. We were working with LGBTQT foster youth in six foster homes, basically doing like liberation work with them through theater and film and photography and connecting them to their creativity, supporting them in accessing their imaginations and helping them like articulate a longer term vision. What are their dreams? What are their goals? Like, what do they crave and desire outside of their like day to day lives? And so that's what our work was there. If you're a regular listener, you'll recognize Jan from our episode 35, where she shares stories of her work in the 1960s and 70s in the early days of the community arts movement and her continuing role as one of the field's most respected historians. In Jan, Rad had connected with someone who has spent her life documenting an almost invisible community of artists, a history that provided a link between Rad's upbringing by an activist organizer mom and their lifelong passion for theater. Meeting Jan, who is such a progressive mind in the socially engaged performance and theater field, and I've learned so, so much from her about the many histories of this work, which is what, what inspired her to write the book and invite me to write it with her and what gave me like a basis for what kind of work I could do. And so that's what's led me here today, combining all the skills I gained from my early life in more traditional Eurocentric theater to then learning all these uh, devising skills like creating art with all different types of people. And so that 
kind of that lens was running through everything I saw that I saw the exploitation running through all the theater and art worlds. I like, I saw the power dynamics and I was like, I wanted something else. I really wanted to be a part of something else, which I now learn y'all in this socially engaged performance field called the long tradition. And so I feel like I'm, I've earned my place into it by finding it. It's like not an articulated history. It's not an articulated field. And it feels like an amazing way to find, it felt like Alice in Wonderland. I was like tumbling down all these different wormholes and rabbit holes and meeting all these incredible people that don't care to be recognized. It was, it felt really good. It felt, it feels like humbling, constantly humbling work and all constantly of service. And which is, I was really at odds with the opposite of that in the commercial theater. And so it felt like a coming home and like all the belonging that I had been seeking growing up and all the ways I was seeking to reconnect with my own ancestral cultures. It felt like a way to start to piece that together with all these different folks that seemed like also were trying to do that in many ways. As long as I've been documenting artists working for community change, this description of coming home has been a constant. When artists with a passionate commitment to making a difference encounter their brothers and sisters in the work, the oddball, out of place, where are my people feeling that many have carried is replaced by an overwhelming sense of family and belonging. This was certainly the case with Rad, but Rad's exhilaration in finding and learning about the long and deep community art story has also given rise to questions about why this kind of work seems so invisible in the context of the broader culture. I think there's a parallel. Like, why is this kind of work obscured? Why is it so hard to find directly to me parallels with finding home and to me that's like a direct correlation to the giant experiment of colonization it's the whole point of it is to remove everyone from their homes their physical homes and their spiritual homes their emotional homes within themselves and i think that disconnection from ourselves and each other is what is exploited to make the rich richer and powerful more powerful. Like people become desperate and they end up coming from a place of scarcity and lack and deficit. And so they want to fill it with these superficial short-term solutions. Like junk food is the perfect metaphor. It doesn't nourish you. It feels good in, in the moment, but it's not nourishing in the long run. And to me, it's the same exact parallel in our theater and in our stories. It's what gets uplifted and what gets centered and what gets resources are easy bites. I'm not judging the kind of work that comes from a more commercial, easily accessible theater, performance, media, but it, it follows the same track as industry. It's, it becomes a, a conveyor belt of the same kind of thing. And so to me, it's the same uncovering and finding the thing and scratching at it so hard to be able to find it. It's the same amount of difficulty as what it takes to really be honoring the land that we're on and really be in deep relationships with each other. To me, it's like a direct parallel. It's all hidden and it's all covered on purpose. And to get to those really nourishing, long-term, seven-generation-long visions, it's going to take some muscle 
to get there and some deep commitment that is antithetical to what we're conditioned to want. In our training at the Center for the Study of Art and Community, we asked people to commit to answering a set of hard questions about their intentions, their accountability, and impact. Questions like, who defines success? What will be different if you do succeed? And who will the work be accountable to? Engaging these kinds of questions are part of the hard work that I think Rad is referring to, a radical practice of inquiry and struggle born of the many questions and influences that have informed their life journey. In the introduction to the book Meeting the Moment that Rad co-wrote with Jan Cohen-Cruz, Rad shares the many tributaries that have etched this path. My worldview was radicalized as I learned more about queerness, intergenerational exchange, indigenous wisdom, dual power, decolonial existence, healing, anti-psychology, third cinema, black womanism, third world and trans feminism, abolition, land stewardship, care and tenderness through devised theater, co-creation processes, performance art, political theater, nonviolent direct action, immersive slash participatory performance, and multimedia experiences. I started figuring out how to weave together my politics and values with my art and the way I move through the world. Rad views their learning journey as a combination of her own instinct and curiosity, as well as the incredible generosity of spirit and wisdom shared by colleagues and mentors all along the way. Most of these topics that I share started first as a feeling or as an instinct. And then both of my parents always made sure that we had all types of friends across all kinds of economic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. So I made sure to have that in my own friend groups as I grew older too. People from all different types of work and passions. And so oftentimes when I would share some of these feelings or instincts I was having, I would have a friend who would connect me to a theory behind it, to a book, to different types of knowledge. And some of the biggest theoretical shaping that I had around this was my oldest lifelong friend, Annie Krasner, whose dad was one of the only other Jews in town in Campinas, moved there from New York. When he moved there, someone was like, oh, you should meet the other Jew, Jacob. And that's my dad. And she's one of my oldest friends. She was an urban planning major at Barnard in Columbia. And when I would share some of these instincts with her, she'd be like, oh, check out this book, check out this essay, check out this theory. Then it felt like I was having a minor in urban planning while I was studying theater. I think it was a way to give me an education and these things that I was instinctually interested in that really rounded out my worldview and that I think is what created even more opening in my mind about the kind of system that I wanted to exist in within performance making. And so that's how I came to know so many of these things out of curiosity. And I'd say at the beginning, I was a little ivory tower, you know, academia in my research. I thought the only things that were valuable were things that came from academia. And then it took me a while to start to decolonize my own understanding of what knowledges are valuable. Part three, finding a moral compass. 
For Rad, one of those valuable knowledge sources came from the lived wisdom rising up from family, most particularly her grandmother, who shared a perspective that Rad recognizes now as a critical life-turning point. My grandma Esther, my dad's mom, grew up in the Soviet Union, and she was one of the first women doctors. She fled during the war with my grandpa and had her first daughter in Kazakhstan, had my father in Israel-Palestine, and then fled to Brazil. And I remember after about six years, we won the green card lottery, and I was able to go back to Brazil for the first time. I was desperate to ask her this question. I was like, Grandma Vovi, I used to call her Vovi, Vovi, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? And she was like, God? What did God ever give me? Nothing. She's like, but the river and the earth and the trees and the stars, they give me everything. They give me life. And that story just, I feel like that's my moral center. That's my moral compass. That is what I try to bring through in all of my work and all the ways I bring people together because I think that's also how we come home to ourselves and come home to each other, is by feeling the truth of that, that what our relatives, the earth, trees, waters, sky, gives us, and that it is everything. And those are our oldest relatives that are still alive today, and placing ourselves within the tiny speck of a timeline that we're a part of and humbling ourselves to the hugeness of our more than human relatives and how to bring that into our day-to-day interactions and our day-to-day lives because I think it's so easy nowadays to like just stare at our own belly buttons and to just feel so huge within our own lives and I just always come back to that story and that wisdom that she shared with me to remember how small I am and how interconnected I am. Yeah. And the future, a guide for the future, too. I think many would agree that imagining the future has become a bit more difficult these last few years. One of the things that have been most challenging for me in this pandemic has been the obscuring of my horizon line, which is how I describe the location and context of my worldview. But the pandemic has fogged my vision so that the stable line out there in the distance just comes and goes, sometimes without warning. It's quite disconcerting. But I think Rad's grandmother's Sky, Earth, and Stars Catechism provides a more reliable compass reading. It also reminds me of a recent Change the Story episode about a theater piece created by Serbia's Da Theater in an urban forest in Belgrade called Dancing Trees. In the piece, the company and audience occupy the forest and over the course of the performance incorporate the trees not only as characters in a story about fighting deforestation and corporate greed, but also as members of the theater company. In the process, I think Da was laying claim to some of the same moral center ground that rose up for Rad in her grandmother's response to her question about God. Those dancing trees provided a stark contrast between the obscuring fog of gratuitous consumption and the clear and present moral horizon line provided by the natural world that is our home. 
It's clear that a sense of a safe home place, internally and in the wider world, also figures prominently in Rad's quest for their own moral center. One of the places that they have found that is in a New York-based youth program called Superhero Clubhouse. It's not surprising that the Clubhouse programs bear some resemblance to some of Rad's own coming-of-age theatrical experiences back in Fort Lauderdale. I started working with them about six years ago, and we create theater to enact climate and environmental justice, cultivate hope, and inspire a thriving future. One of the things that I find so incredible and why I wanted to work with Superhero Clubhouse is that they have a way of making the immense feel manageable. And so they have this other eco-theater methodology that is healing-centered, not trauma-centered, and multidisciplinary. There's music and dance and media. And it's just a way of making these like really huge and sometimes terrifying concepts and realities feel manageable. Just beginning. Look at the horizons you have changed. Look at all the grass. Big Green Theater specifically works in New York City public schools. And we work with, we have teaching artists that teach the kids how to write plays. And we bring in all different types of knowledge keepers from like native land stewards to different kinds of scientists, healers, activists to talk to the youth. And then the youth write plays based off of them, and then they're professionally produced at the end of the school year for the youth and all their families and the general public. And that's Big Green Theater. And then at Superhero Clubhouse in general, we make all different types of performances. There's a hiking play where, you know, you hike and you hear the play with one other person as you go. Our most recent play, Mamelephant, was made over years with climate refugee from the Sakha Republic, which is in northern Russia. It's a sovereign territory of the indigenous folks from there. And it was a piece they co-created with her about what is happening to her homelands and what's happened when the permafrost melts and is melting. And so I just think it's an amazing way to bring peace in climate chaos and in climate anxiety. And it helps me feel hopeful. Here's what a couple of clubhouse superheroes have to say about it. Write anything you want, and it's like you can be free, right? Get ready for knowledge, because that's what this is about. And also, be dramatic, because that's what you're going to need. <laughs> the tangible hope is like our driving force and our driving motto, and uplifting indigenous voices who have been the authority on these issues for thousands and thousands of years, when centering and uplifting their wisdom and knowledge at just as much as we center and uplift quote-unquote scientific knowledge. The Superhero Clubhouse was established in 2011 by Lang Sing Fu and Jem Picard. They describe what happens at the clubhouse as joyfully rooted in ecological knowledge, relationships to the land, and imagination as a powerful tool of future building. Rad describes the process they've created for a program called the Big Green Theater. 
Lanny and Jem have made a really incredible pedagogy and methodology for doing this. I mean, it's a pretty rigorous process, and it does span the course of a year. In the Big Green Theater room would be the two teaching artists and 10 to 15 kids. The kids are usually middle school aged from 10 to 13 years old. So the methodology that they build into it is like starting with what are elements that make a play. And so they teach about characters and character building and setting and where are you and what are you. They start with small exercises. They write really tiny plays. And then they bring in the presenters to talk about some fic topics that they want to cover that year. And then they teach the kids how to integrate what the presenters bring in and what they're learning from the presenters into their plays. So then they just keep writing plays and then work on them. And then they they decide together on what is going to be the overall setting for the big play. And then they each write short plays that build the scenes within the bigger play that they had all agreed on. And they all agreed on the topic. They all agreed on what are the characters that are going to run throughout. And then they each get to write scenes that are in their chosen genre and that they get full control and autonomy over. And then some of them write lyrics and we get guest composers to put them to music and the kids approve of everything along the way. At the beginning of the pandemic, we did them as movies because usually they're in person, but you know, everyone was quarantined at home. So our puppet designer made puppets out of trash and we used all recycled everything. So it was really amazing. It's like mind blowing. Here's a wetland duck singing in protest from a New York PS 196 Superhero Clubhouse production. No, you can't. That's my home. Leave our wetlands alone. You're from the future. Don't you have your own? All the grass and the trees give me just what I need. I need to protect it. So you should just leave. The wetlands are our home. And they gotta be here. And they gotta be here. Yeah, the wetlands are our home. And they gotta be here. And they gotta be here. done it with the Billion Oyster Project. We've done it with some Shinnecock elders about what's happening in Long Island on their lands. And the one that sticks with me the most is the impossible question. That's usually the basis of how we make things together, making a really impossible question and trying to answer it together which is one of my favorite things about the genre that Superhero Clubhouse falls in, which is like magical realism um, and sometimes fantasy. It takes you outside of what we think is possible, these paradigms of so-called reality. And it, it helps us crack our minds and understandings open to actually be able to dream bigger and dream beyond and come up with solutions that perhaps people in labs couldn't even dream of because they're thinking in very specific boxes and paradigms. And so that's what excites me about these collaborations across disciplines between the kids and scientists is that sometimes the things they think of are genius and quite brilliant. You know what I mean? And it like really cracks open 
thinking and it's like really amazing. It's like kind of mind blowing. Part four, meeting the moment. As Rad mentioned earlier in this episode, over the past few years, she's been intensely involved in a writing project with her friend Jan Cohen Cruz. The book they produced together called Meeting the Moment, socially engaged performance 1965 to 2020 by those who lived it, was published earlier in 2022 by New Village Press. Here is how Jan described the book and her partnership with Rad in episode 35. First, let me say it's our book, our being myself and Rad Pereira, who's about 40 years younger than me. Rad was born in Brazil. Rad is gender fluid. Rad's ideas were very aligned in principles about socially engaged performance, but Rad is part of a whole other generation than me. And at a certain point, I realized that I couldn't write the book I wanted to write by myself because I wanted this 55-year span coming from the mid 60s. And I'm not I'm not embedded enough in the last 10 or even 15 years. And Rad is. One thing that had really struck me from being in this field for so long is there's so many people doing it under different names and often they don't know about each other. And there are people who think they've invented it. And I wanted people to know about each other. Joining forces with Jan provided Rad with an intimate connection to the multi-layered, multi-generational artistic foundation of the socially engaged performance field. It also introduced Rad to a dramatically expanded community of friends and colleagues. I feel like doing this book was like the grad school that I dreamt of. Like we talked about, a lot of this work is obscured and a lot of this work is very challenging to find. That was Jan's original impulse to writing the book. She saw that there was no fied narrative, no unified history, no articulated kind of vision of what even is this field. And at first she had just interviewed me for it. And then she invited me to co-write it, co-write it with her. And I felt so honored. And so, yeah, we had the same seven questions that we asked about 70 people that ranged from who influenced them, what is the history of this field as they know it, what led them to this kind of work, how do they like to work, what values do they think are important in the work, what kind of support is needed to do this very specific community-rooted work. And I learned so much. It was incredible to hear about people's influences. One of the biggest things we learned is that there is no unified history of this work. There's multiple, many histories, and many people talk about it in different ways. Socially engaged performance, socially engaged theater, political theater, social practice, civic practice, public practice. And so it was really cool to hear about it from people coming at it from different ways. Some people coming at it through from a theater world, some people coming at it from performance art world, some people coming at it from activism. The research and interviews Rad undertook for the book reinforced many of the lessons that they had come to in their own practice over the years. They also provided new insights into the uniquely demanding alchemy of building, sustaining, and remaining accountable in very long-term community arts partnerships. I learned that it is a long-term commitment to build the trust needed within community to continually make work together and to create your own way of storytelling and to have enough support from each other. It's not these like one-off 
come read lines from this play I want to do, and then let's all leave and say goodbye. A lot of these people have been working together for decades when are continually recommitting to each other and making an artistic home together, which I find incredible. At the beginning of the pandemic, so many theaters were like worried about losing audiences. But for most of the people we interviewed in the book, they weren't worried at all about losing audiences because they didn't view them as they're just their audiences. It was part of their community. They know who's going to come see their shows. They know because it's necessary. They're filling a need that they see in their community. It's not like the market. They're serving a purpose in their communities and continually making themselves valuable. I learned about how different communities showed up for artists, like credit unions, letting certain folks, certain theater companies forego their mortgage payments, bakeries donating their goods to feed the company, a few different types of co-learning situations for the kids that in the company whose parents did have to go to work. Just all different ways people were showing up for each other. It felt like small villages. It felt like really getting to know the ways people were functioning in their small villages. And it was really also beautiful to learn about how people were making meaning. It was really amazing to see how people were drawing wisdom and were making meaning of COVID and of the grief and the loss together. I learned a lot about how we hold each other through loss and through grief and how art is an amazing vehicle and glue I began this episode by evoking the idea of an old soul. One of the most old soul aspects of Rad's journey is their continuing work in New York's Hudson River Valley with Iron Path Farms, which is a Haudenosaunee two-spirit-led food sovereignty project growing ancestral foods for indigenous people. I see the future pretty clearly. I think what I'm hoping to take to the next step is my part with my partner Dio Ganti. They're a native, they're a Mohawk of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is what's currently called upstate New York. And we're stewarding this land project to reclaim native land, to bring back traditional foods, and uplifting indigenous sovereignty and teaching people how to do that as a way to ensure a thriving future for these lands and earth and waters. We've been working on it for about almost, for about two years now. And we have a lot of different partners that are supporting us. So having this land project for food sovereignty rooted in Haudenosaunee principles and teachings, and also having space for artists to come and create in a healing way in a different way and continue building what an alternative performance and theater making ecosystem looks like especially rooted in solidarity economy principles so i i see myself overall there and then continuing travel to support people in creating their own ecosystems that are more equitable that are healing-centered, that are rooted in the intersection between Indigenous sovereignty and Black liberation with queer futures in mind. And one of my passions and goals is to be able to bring not only inner-city youth, 
but grown folks who were raised in cities disconnected from their cultures, specifically Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks and our allies, to be able to reconnect with nature. Because it's beautiful to make these plays with the kids, but I really want them to be able to not be scared. My own mother is scared of being in nature because she was raised in cities. And I want to be able to bring together these beautiful theater making methodology we have on the land and to continue building those relationships with what we're building up here and to be able to have that that interplay. One of the things that both Jan Cohen Cruz and Rad Pereira have in common is a respect for and a grounding in the work of Augusto Boal and the social change movement he provoked in Brazil through his Theater of the Oppressed. Building on the work of Brazilian educator and philosopher Paulo Freire, Boal regarded theater as a powerful change agent for both social and personal transformation. I learned a lot from Theater of the Oppressed, but which Jan told me, Augusto Boal actually wanted to call Theater of the Liberated. But this publisher was like, no, Theater of the Oppressed will sell more books. I learned a lot about cops in the head and how oftentimes the quote-unquote devil or the toxicity is now within us. And in my view, our part of our current work is the internal work. When is like, how do we flush out these toxins? How do we heal so that we can come to the work from a whole place from or from a healing place from a place of abundance where we know it is possible not what more not where we're constantly questioning is there enough is there enough for me is this actually going to happen not a question of if but changing it to a question of when and absolutely rewriting these stories in our brains that like these little voices that keep telling us it's not possible oh this will never work because of this and like very constantly rewriting those stories and those narratives that are coursing in through our brains. And so I think it's that. I think it's I think it's this work within our own selves of practicing possibility and like practicing speaking with the possible in mind and with the hope and not wasting time second guessing or doubting, but instead rerouting that energy to figuring out what the steps might be and utilizing each other instead of thinking that we're like in these little flesh bags by ourselves. It's okay, how can we figure out these steps together? What is our shared goals? So many shared goals and it's just connecting with hope to get there. Building on that sentiment, I think connecting with hope that is of course amplified by the human creative spirit is a good way to characterize the many impulses and influences that have sparked Rad Pereira's art and social change journey. A journey that, of course, is moving ahead as we speak with the urgency and deliberation that is necessary in these times. I want to thank Rad and Jan Cohen Cruz for their incredible work and for sharing their stories. As always, many of the people, places, ideas, and initiatives that have shown up in this episode will be shared in our show notes. We'll also be providing a link to the New Village Press and Rad and Jan's book, Meeting the Moment. Story, story, story. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's hosted by yours truly, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape sprout from the ever-fertile musical imagination of the incomparable Judy Munson. 
Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.org, and our inspiration is delivered daily on a toasted sesame seed roll by the mysterious Ook 235.